It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe, a reporter here in our London office, and each week we take a look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. After Hillary Clinton's nomination as the Democratic presidential candidate on Tuesday, her husband, former U.S. President Bill Clinton, took to the stage to deliver a love letter to the woman he called the best darn changemaker I ever met. Hillary will make us stronger together. You know it because she spent a lifetime doing it. But away from the cheering in the hall, many Americans are far from sure he's right. According to Real Clear Politics, a political news aggregator, Clinton's favorability rating is just 38%, meaning that well under half of all voters approve of her. It's a problem that she shares with her rival for the presidency, Donald Trump, whose rating is at 36%. For comparison, current President Barack Obama has a favorability rating of around 56%, despite his long and sometimes controversial time in office. Usually you'd expect him to be more tarnished than the fresh new faces. Ilya Shapiro, a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, an American think tank, has calculated that if an independent candidate wants to run for US president, he or she has until next week, August the 2nd, to register, for he or she to be able to win an electoral college majority. It's got us thinking about choice in politics. Why, when both mainstream candidates are so disliked, has no commanding alternative emerged? Could it still happen? It's not just America. In Europe, voters are getting bored of traditional parties and looking for something new, but Spain serves as a sobering example. In the last three years, two new parties, the hard-left Podemos and centrist Ciudadanos, have emerged on the national stage. Both had near-instant success. In a general election last December, they came a close third and fourth after Spain's two main parties, the People's Party and the Socialists. Before the vote, Podemos leader Pablo Iglesias was excited. And we would like to to be a part, to be an element in the creation of a new political majority in, in our country. But that election result meant months of deadlock as nobody was able to form a government. A second election in June produced a similarly inconclusive result. Would it have been better for Spanish voters if they'd just stuck with the original options? Joining me to discuss all this are Brian Klaas, a fellow in comparative politics at the London School of Economics. He's an expert on global democracy and is the author of a book, The Despot's Accomplice, How the West is Aiding and Abetting the Decline of Democracy. And Stacey Hilliard, who currently serves as the chairman of American Voices International, a non-partisan political action committee. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having, Thanks for having us on. So to start with a fairly simple question, um, why are 
Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump so unpopular? Why, why don't people like them? Well, I mean, I think there's uh, a few reasons for this. One is that Hillary Clinton has long been tarnished by a series of gaffes and, and scandals that also uh, plagued her husband's presidency. And the other is that Donald Trump is just a provocative candidate who's proposing things that have never been seen in the history of American politics before, like banning 1.7 billion people from entering the United States, speaking in incendiary tones about um, Mexican immigrants, for example, and painting them as as rapists and murderers, and then expecting that to go away if he tweets a photo of himself with a taco bowl. So, I mean, this this all has you know added up to two of the least uh, popular presidential candidates in American history. And that's the problem that I think both Trump and Clinton have is that they both are running against the only person they could possibly lose to. Yeah, I think Hillary Clinton's seen very much as part of the establishment and this being a very anti-establishment year, not just within the U.S., but this wave that's sweeping the globe. And you have Donald Trump coming out as the non-traditional candidate. He hasn't been a governor. He hasn't been a senator. And he's been getting waves of support. But at the same time, he never really, until there was down to two candidates within the primary of the Republicans, he never won the majority. He never had over 30 percent. So it was a very odd mix where you had the majority of Republicans voting for a mix of candidates who are much of a muchness, very similar to each other. But in actuality, that minority candidate won. So this dislike for Donald Trump and dislike for Hillary Clinton is going to really be the big ticket within the election that people are going to be voting for the other to vote against the other candidate. So it's sort of fair to say then that a lot of people might be kind of holding their nose and voting because they prefer that party? or I think very much so. It's very much a hold-your-nose election this year. And you see people who were supporting um, Bernie Sanders some holding their nose and voting for Hillary Clinton, but you see them also turning and voting for Donald Trump because they don't see Hillary taking forward that banner that Bernie put out there for them. And so it's it's going to be interesting to see if Hillary and, and Donald Trump can actually get their bases out to vote and if people will actually come out and vote or if they'll just stay home. And um, it's only ever really those two that you hear about in the media. It's only going to be one of those two that's going to win, and we'll talk in a bit about why that is. But... Um, is, is there anyone else? I mean, is there, there, are, there, are there other candidates we, we could be talking about? Yes. Yeah, so there's uh, a Libertarian Party candidate, uh, Gary Johnson, who's polling around 9%, and also the Green Party candidate, Dr. Jill Stein, who's you know making an appeal this week to disaffected Bernie Sanders supporters. I mean, I've made the analogy with these two third-party candidates. They have, they have no chance of winning. They're not going to – neither of them will be the president. And so I've, I've made the analogy with, with a train that's on the tracks heading towards a group of innocent victims. And it, whether you hold your nose and vote against Trump or hold your nose and vote against Hillary, imagine the train's going towards them, right? If you vote for the candidate, so if it's the Trump train and you vote for Trump, that's like pouring coal into the train, right? If you vote for Clinton and you're a Sanders supporter, you might slow down the train. You might make it go a little slower. You might not, you might not reach your destination that you, you know, ideally would have, but the train would get there safely. If you vote for somebody like Stein or Gary Johnson, you're basically calling a track repairman and hoping that they'll eventually call you back. There's a 1% chance they might, and that maybe someday train travel will be safer, right? But this is, this is a problem that's happening now. And so to me, the third-party candidate votes are tossing away a vote in the most important presidential election in American history, in my view. To me, that's a very misguided view, and it's also one that, that you know, when you look at the risks of these different candidates, and, you know, full, full disclosure, I'm a Democrat, I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, when I look at the risks of Donald Trump, I think that this is a privileged choice to say, look, I don't, I don't care enough about the people who are going to be affected by this. I want to have my own personal principles stay intact. And I don't find that palatable. Yeah, I think a lot of people 
are going to vote for Libertarian or for the Green Party, or they will just not vote at the top of the ticket, and they'll vote for their senator and, and congressman. And they'll do that because they don't want to be blamed for putting somebody in office that they inherently disagree with, whether that's Trump or whether that's Hillary Clinton. Now, full disclosure, I'm a Republican, and I'm totally undecided as to how I'm going to vote. And I am a diehard, dyed-in-the-wool Republican. And this is something that I think a lot of people within the party are, are in conflict with. They're doing a lot of soul searching, saying, is this somebody that I can vote for? And I was thinking that the VP nominations on both sides would play a lot into this, that people for the first time would actually be going, well, I don't really trust Trump, but I do like Mike Pence, or I don't really trust Hillary, but you know what? Tom Kane, I can get on board with him, and I like him. And I think that was a very clever pick for Hillary because a lot of Republicans may be swayed over to, to her side to vote for, for him instead of voting for Donald Trump. You say you're not sure how you're going to vote. How, how would you vote then if not for Trump? I would be swayed to vote for the Libertarian candidate. I'm, I would also be swayed to not vote at the top of the ticket. Being from Texas, which is a very strong Republican state, um, I think that there is a lot of people who will say it doesn't matter what my vote is anyway, that the state's going to go Republican and it's going to go red. And what they actually risk doing is potentially putting Hillary Clinton uh, is winning the state because it is also turning into what's considered a purple state um, that has a lot of swing value within it when you look at cities like Houston, which is where I'm from, which is a very Democrat held city, but a very heavily Republican city in the suburbs. So people are trying to figure out what they're going to do, but inadvertently may end up having the adverse effect. And I think that when it comes down to voting, to the day, the polling day, that when people actually get in the polling booth, they say during the polls leading up to it that they'll vote for a libertarian. They say that they won't vote. But when they do actually go and vote, what you see traditionally time and time again is that they cast the vote for the party that they have traditionally voted for because they feel that they represent the values and particularly from the Senate and congressional seats that they're going to be able to hold their candidate to account. I also agree with Brian that this is one of the most important elections in our lifetime, uh, looking at the number of Supreme Court justices that are going to be up for nomination. And I think that a lot of people going into the polling booth are keeping that in, in the back of their mind saying, well, I could be swayed to vote for Hillary Clinton if this wasn't the case, if we didn't have so many um, nominees coming up. Brian, you're right there. We are now only a few months out. It's kind of decision time. But if we can cast our minds back then, why did we get here? Why didn't a strong independent candidate emerge? There were names mentioned. You know, there was there was Romney. There was uh, uh, Mike Bloomberg. There were all, all kinds of things thrown around, whether moderate Republicans like Stacey thought about putting up a candidate. What, why do we think this didn't happen? I mean, I think we have a, a very damaged primary selection process. Um, that, that obviously is not producing the correct results because we have a population of 330 million people and we have better candidates than these two people. There's, there's people out there who would be better presidents than both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I'd be the first to acknowledge that even as a Democrat who will eventually vote Clinton, right? But I, I think that there's uh, – one of the big problems in our system is there's sort of two things that I focus on. One is gerrymandering, which is where districts are drawn to uh, a certain degree to create safe seats so that typically – even though Congress polls at like 10% in terms of approval ratings, like 90 plus percent of congressmen or congresswomen get reelected, right? So that doesn't create any sort of competition within the districts. It creates a polarizing effect. That's a huge problem. The second thing is money in politics, right? So Hillary Clinton bulldozed basically all of her potential rivals before 
the Democratic primary even began. The reason Bernie Sanders basically ended up as her main rival was because the Democratic establishment didn't take his candidacy seriously and they figured, look, we'll have a fringe left candidate against her. Fine. Everybody else was sort of bullied by the fact that she was going to have a billion dollars behind her just by putting her name on the ballot. And so you only had three potential candidates to succeed Barack Obama's presidency, right? And there's a ton of Democratic talent just as there's a ton of Republican talent. Now, the Republicans had a lot more people on the ballot, but it was so divided, as Stacey highlighted, that you ended up having sort of the anti-Trump vote split so many ways that Trump with, you know, I think he got like 40 some odd percent of the, of the votes in the Republican primary, but became the nominee. And so that system is clearly not working. But that's the party system. That's down to the parties to determine how they run their primaries, and it's actually down to the states to determine how they run their primaries. With the Republicans, I think this was totally their own doing. The party, um, in the way that they tried to actually change their primary system to shorten it to make sure that a more establishment candidate won, they actually ended up getting an anti-establishment candidate. But the interesting thing was as people dropped out of the race, as they continued to drop out of the race, not a single one of them, aside from Chris Christie and Ben Carson, endorsed another candidate. Those more moderate right-of-center candidates did not endorse a candidate. And I think that was very damaging to those who were left back in the race. So, so Kasich could have gotten, could have easily gotten the nomination had he been able to get the backing and the support of those candidates that had actually dropped out of this, the primary. Now you have this issue that's come out um, just before the Democrat convention with uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and what's going to happen there and, and showing the favoritism of the DNC over Hillary Clinton becoming the nominee. So I think there's something inherently wrong within the party system and how the primaries work. I, but I think I would even go a step further. Money is an issue, and we do need campaign finance reform. But this becomes a bit of turkeys voting for Christmas. They're just not going to do it as long as it guarantees them keeping their seats. But one of the problems that we have is actually being able to engage in the system. If you're a third-party candidate or if you're an independent candidate, it costs a lot of money. It's very difficult to get on the ballot um, in a lot of the states. You have to either have an established party and you have to have a certain percentage of the vote within state elections, or you have to, in Texas, you have to have over 79,000 signatures to be able to get on the ballot. And to go out and collect those signatures again, costs a lot of money. The media, being able to have fair play within the media. Donald Trump's been able to get tons of free media coverage, but that's because he had a media persona and a media profile prior to the, prior to the race. And he's, you know, a bit of an intriguing character and a bit of a news story in and of himself. So that was made it very easy for him to enter as a non-establishment candidate. But if you're coming at this from somebody who's totally independent or coming at it from a third party, it's very difficult to get within the mainstream media to get the exposure that you need to get your platform out there. Then we have the issue of the Electoral College and how the system is actually inherently against a third party. Mm. And Could you talk us through that? So the Electoral College, we have a winner takes all. So the Electoral College was being was designed to not allow the most populous states to have the most power. So having a proportional type of representation um, that says that if Texas, California, New York, and Florida all dominate with one candidate, that they're not going to dominate every election and determine uh, Nebraska, Kansas, um, and, and their future. So everybody has a bit of a stake in this. And it's based on number of House of Representatives, the senators, and it's supposed to give everybody a bit of a fair playing field. But the way the electors that cast the ballot are selected is by winners takes all. 
So in the primary, you heard a lot about, well, Bernie Sanders got eight votes and Hillary Clinton got 15 votes from one state, and you saw this division of, of electoral votes within their primary system. You don't have that with the electoral college. So the winner takes all makes it very difficult for third party. And you saw that with Ross Perot in 1992, where he got 19% of the popular vote, but didn't win any states. I would actually like to come back to Perot in a minute, but just before we do, just on the more basic question, should we be changing something here? Should we be making it easier for other parties or third candidates, independent candidates to get on the ballot? I think that you have you you have basically a trade-off in how you set up your electoral systems, right? So uh, what Stacey's talking about, the first-past-the-post system that then feeds into the electoral college and winner-takes-all, it's in political science, this is one of the laws of, of how parties shake out based on the electoral system. It produces a two-party system because basically as long as you get the bigger tent, you're going to win the vote. The, the benefit of that is that you have a certain stability in terms of government formation because you never have a third-party spoiler. You never have to come up with coalitions, et cetera. Uh, and that produces some form of stability, but it reduces choice. So you have, you know, the Democrats or the Republicans, and realistically, those are the options with a few exceptions in, in, in historical anomalies. Now, I mean, I think the, the, the antidote to that that the American system has that a lot of European systems don't is that there's party flexibility. So you have things like in 2010, you had a senator from West Virginia in Obama's party who ran a 30-second ad of him. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm taking out a rifle and shooting Obama's cap-and-trade bill and saying literally nothing and saying, I endorse this message, right? It's his own party's president, and he's shooting a, a signature piece of legislation literally with a gun when Obama's trying to reduce guns. So you have this flexibility because states have different Democratic parties, right? So the West Virginia Democrats are much more a coal-producing, working-class, pro-gun, anti-climate change party. And then you have a totally different Democratic party in California. The same is true of the Republicans, right? They have different shades. There's some more evangelical, some are more about big business, et cetera. And so that flexibility is something that is the American antidote to this choice aspect. But it doesn't work on the presidential level because you have to have a candidate that can represent the entire country. So should we really, in the media, be not obsessing quite so much about the eventual identity of who is president and looking a bit more 
in nuance at uh, the rest of the system and how that puts checks and balances on these people? Well, I think within the system, you have um, allowing more participation in the system. I would be, I would definitely be for, and particularly when you look at the presidential debates. I mean, it was a bit of a mockery of the debates with the Republican debates with 15 people on the stage or however many there were. Um, but at least allowing a bit more uh, voices to be heard in the presidential debates. But that comes down to the Federal Election Commission and the Commission on Presidential Debates. They set the threshold of what the polling numbers have to be to allow that third party on there. And they have it at, I believe it's around 15%, which is the mathematical formula that says that there's a possibility they may win one state out of the Electoral College. So looking at how they can reform that, and that's something that Congress has to do, that Congress would have to pass some sort of legislation to allow that to happen. The likelihood of them doing that, I think, is very, very slim. But I think that the media, if they start putting pressure on on the government to actually start looking at these alternatives, we might be able to see some change. To look a little bit at the history of this, you know, we touched briefly uh, there on Ross Perot and a couple of others. I mean, has anyone ever got close to, to winning um, as an independent? On the presidential level, there's sort of two examples. There's George Wallace in 1968, uh, who won a few states, actually. And then Ross Perot, as Stacey highlighted, that's, um, you know, he, he got 20% of the vote, but didn't get any states. I'm from Minnesota, which is one of the few examples of third party candidates actually winning uh, a statewide office. And that was Jesse Ventura, who won the governorship. Um, and, you know, for people who are not familiar with him, he's a former Navy SEAL turned WWF wrestler. Um, and basically what happened in the race is there was two equally unpopular Republicans and Democrats running against each other, and they ignored him because they figured the third party can't possibly win. And he crept up in the polls little by little, and then all of a sudden this wave of young voters tipped him over, and it was sort of 33, 32, 32 in the, in the actual result. And all of a sudden we woke up with an Independence Party candidate uh, as the governor. And, you know, he ended up, his inauguration was very colorful. He had a pink feather boa on during the, the proceedings. And it wasn't a complete disaster of an administration the four years he was in power. Um, one, you know, his, his proponents would say that the benefit of him was that he had Republicans and Democrats both in his cabinet. Um, so, you know, his advisors were from both parties. On the other hand, his ability to sort of wrangle uh, legislation through um, the state legislature was, was muted by his, you know, lack of connections to either party. So there, there are some precedents in terms of state level office. There's very few national uh, in terms of actual success. Yeah, and a lot of people are comparing 1992 to the situation we're in now. We were just coming out of a recession. Uh, people felt that the economy wasn't improving. They still felt that uh, they were suffering from the recession. And this is, sorry, just to clarify for listeners, where Ross Perot won, I think, 19% of the popular yes. vote overall, didn't yes. he? And uh, so people are making this comparison with, with Ross Perot and a, and a potential third-party figure coming in. Um, but one of the other differences, actually, between 92 and now is that Bill Clinton and George Bush, uh, Papa Bush, as we affectionately call him in Texas, were, were seen as both being very centrist candidates and, and being seen as being very similar. So he was able to come in on, a, on the outside of them, whereas now we have two candidates who have taken to the extremes of their parties. And there's a middle aisle that's actually available for people to, to take advantage of if somebody wanted to come in. They should have come in much sooner if they wanted to be involved in the race. And throwing it forward to uh, November, we've mentioned them a little bit. How do we think the Libertarian Party is going to do? You know, you've mentioned to Stacey that you'd consider voting for them. At the same time, there's plenty of reasons why people might not. How are they going to come out, do we think? Well, they're not going to win. I mean, Gary Johnson's not going to win any states. 
Um, so, you know, the, the, the shakeout here is going to be a question about what type of spoiler they play. Um, I, I don't think it's something where, you know, even in spite of my strongly stated views about not voting for third-party candidates this election, I don't think it's a bad, bad thing that they exist. Um, I think they should exist, and I think that their policy ideas are important as part of the conversation. But I think that um, you know th- nobody really knows exactly who's going to defect from 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 each party. And the interesting thing here, I think, with the defections on the left, especially from Clinton, is that on a policy point of view, she's basically Obama with a little bit more progressive mentality on a few things pulled to the left from Bernie Sanders. Right? She's had to sort of move to the left because Sanders produced such a robust challenge. And so it's a really strange thing to me to see Democrats. Democrats who, you know, largely are happy with Obama, not thrilled, right? There's there's a lot of disappointment on the left, but it's, okay, he moved the country in a left direction. And then to see them abandoning Hillary Clinton's candidacy when effectively what she would produce is like a, a continuation of Obama's policies and maybe some even more progressive ideas. So um, I, I think that's something to keep in mind here is we, we, we equate Trump and Clinton as though they're both sort of these equally unpalatable options in the eyes of their parties. But like, Clinton is the Democratic Party's platform, right? Trump is not. And that's a super important difference because Trump is saying things that Republicans just do not believe, like we should not have international trade agreements and we should put tariffs on Chinese imports. Like these type of things have never been the orthodoxy of the Republican Party. And Hillary Clinton is not doing the same thing. She's saying basically what Obama said for eight years. So I think that's something where the left has really lost sight of this, right? That the the right has a reason to be upset, I would say. I would say that, you know, if you're a Paul Ryan Republican, you would be really upset at, at a Trump presidency if he enacted his vision. But you wouldn't, if you were an Obama Democrat, you wouldn't be upset at what Clinton's advocating for. You just have personal issues with the type of candidate she is and the type of campaign she's running. But I think the third parties actually are forcing those mainstream parties to change some of their policies. And you saw that here in in the UK with UKIP, with the Conservative Party forcing a referendum on the EU and actually pushing the party to do things that they may not normally do and taking stances. So the third parties do have a role, and their role is actually starting to hold those mainstream parties to account. So I think that the Libertarian Party will do better than they have done in the past. They won't win any states, but what they might do is force either party, whoever wins, to start looking at at their policies in a slightly different way. And so what about Spain? Um, so here we've got a country where two uh, old established parties, the centre-right People's Party, the centre-left Socialist Party, uh, no longer inspired the electorate. You had two new parties, uh, Ciudadanos and Podemos, set to invigorate things. And then after not one but two general elections, the result remains the same. All four parties in an uneasy deadlock. Uh, Here's acting Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy of the People's Party, who's still failing to form a government, claiming his party had earned the right to govern. We demand the right to govern precisely because we won the poll. Basically, what we've got here is a position where there's no majority, um, no obvious coalition pairing. Party leaders are meeting the king this week to see if any of them is fit to form a government. But is this whole saga a sign that maybe working within traditional parties to reform them and make them do the kind of things that you want them to do can be better than starting a whole load of new ones and confusing everyone. Let's keep in mind here what basically happened, right? So we had a leftist splinter party come away from the center-left party. They won 45% in the, 26, in the 2016 election, and now they're not going to be able to form a government even though the center-right party got 33%, right? So this, this is a, a cautionary tale, I think, for America, that you can have you know, the numbers behind you, but if you splinter, 
you end up losing power and not getting any of the things you wanted. So it, it's sort of, you know, and this is, this is also something that's a hugely relevant debate in the UK with Corbyn in the Labour Party is, you know, is, are his principled policies, uh, you know, policy stances really worth it if that means that Labour is in the shadow opposition for, you know, the foreseeable future? So this is a, a question, again, about principle versus pragmatism, and it's the same thing happening in Spain. And one of the other things that you see happening in Spain that is a cautionary tale for the U.S. is that the Ciudadanos and Pandemos, after the first election, tried to they approached each other to try to form a coalition, thus alienated those people who moved from the center-right to vote for Ciudadanos, and so that causing them to go back and vote for the center-right party. So you have an alienating of the bases that can, that can occur and actually just causing it to go right back to how the system used to be. And you saw that here in the UK as well with after a coalition government, the new government in 2015 ended up being business as usual. Yeah, and that was just to explain, that was the 2010 coalition between conservatives and Lib Dems. And then we had a conservative government and you're right, it shifted right back again. And so, I mean, given that there's a certain disillusionment there, um, are we going to see these sorts of parties dying out again, do we think? I don't think that there's going to, I mean, I think that this is, 2016 has been the most volatile political year in memory, and I think that this is going to continue. I think the, the American presidential election is going to impact European politics because, um, you know, if, if Donald Trump loses in a landslide, then this sort of flirtation with populist uh, candidates might end up being something that, you know, parties try to rein in the popular side of their base. They try to maybe restrict uh, how many people get to choose the, the, the leader of the party, things like that in response, right? If Trump wins, it could produce copycats across uh, the EU and not just, you know, in Spain. But but I also think that, you know, this proportional representation aspect is one where, where parties make, as I said before, the trade-off. And, and in Spain, the, the trade-off is now becoming clear. It's instability. And if they can't form a government, that's going to really be a problem at a time when 21% of the population is unemployed, uh, that, that wants to find a job. I mean, this is absolutely catastrophic in coming from an American context where we, you know, we freak out if it's above 5%. So, uh, you know, you quadruple that and then you have young people where they're potentially 50% are unemployed. So deadlock is not just sort of a, a partisan problem. It's actually like grinding the country's economy to a halt. Do you think then that people will get angry with the parties for creating this deadlock or will they just get angry at politics in general? Well, I think that's where the anti-establishment wave is coming from and the sentiment that you see not just in Europe, you see it in Africa, you see it in Southeast Asia, that people are actually just tired of politicians and tired of politics as usual. And I think in Spain, if they're unable to form a government, which they have traditionally had minority governments instead of coalitions, so that may be an option for them, but it's going to still create some more instability given the division. And so in Spain... Even if you end up with, say, uh, a minority government by Mariano Rajoy, who's the current acting prime minister, um, that doesn't necessarily mean stability then, does it? No, because you still have this division of powers within within the, the Congress and the, the politicians that were elected on behalf of these platforms that they stood on. They're going to have to represent their electorate's uh, views. And so you're going to have... a they're going to have to form some sort of informal coalitions within that. And if they're an unable to do that, it's just going to create more instability. And Brian, do you think we'll see, in a way then, this kind of cycle feeding itself a bit in Spain? You know, there was anger at the two main parties. There were corruption scandals. There was the Eurozone crisis. So now this has happened. It, is there just going to be more and more anti-politics feeling? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the most likely scenario to be anti-establishment, to continue blame 
politics and politicians for for every ill. And I think that there's a point to this, right? Like Spanish politics are not working well. The co- the country is not on a good trajectory currently, and the economic outcome is, you know, really uncertain right now, especially for a country, as I said before, that's really facing dire economic consequences. But I think to some extent, you know, voters need to think about politics in a new light too, because this all or nothingness, right? That you, you, you vote for your party, it doesn't give you 100% of what you want, it gives you 70% of what you want, and then you hate it, right? That, that's just not the way that things get done. You have to think about, are we moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? And that's what, you know, historically in all these, in all these countries, Spain, the United States, et cetera, that's what Democrats and Republicans would, would fight over, right? Is, is the country moving in a Democratic direction or a Republican direction? Not, I hate Republicans or I hate Democrats, right? And, and the rhetoric in, in Europe and the United States is both becoming all or nothing. And I think that that's really damaging to political progress of the sort that everyone sort of wants to see, right? Um, and, and it's just, it's a question of compromise. It's, it's a question of saying, look, yeah, I got, I got most of what I wanted, but uh, I didn't get everything and that's okay. And so what's the eventual outcome of this? Um, you know, do we see the voters changing or do we see politics changing? Are we going to get to a position where voters learn to go back to how they used to be and maybe be a little bit more patient with the parties? Or are we going to see systems uh, like Spain and the US fragmenting more and more and more? I think you'll see smart parties changing. And I think you'll see them starting to adapt to the, the new ways to interact with their, with their electorate and with the demos. So the Republican Party, I think this has been a wake-up call to them and, and how the primary season went and also from their electorate that people want change. And what that change is, nobody's really quite certain what it is. Um, but you had somebody like Marco Rubio, who represented a totally different aspiration than, say, a Donald Trump. And if you look at the who, who would be voting for those two candidates, they're very different. And their outlook on social issues is different. Their outlook on international engagement is different. You have these parties that are not responding. And I think that's going back to the issue of third parties that it's going to have to force the mainstream parties to, to change. So to wrap up then, really, in your both of your view, I think, what we're trying to get back to is a system where the, the bipartisanship works. Two strong parties work better for everyone rather than trying to break things and, and go a different way. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we want compromise, right? I think that we... There, there are good solutions and bad solutions, and, and you can have two extreme views and come somewhere towards the middle, and that, you know... It's not perfect. It's messy. It's how politics works, but it gets it gets things done and, and, and moves the country forward, which is exactly what we need right now. So I think you know, compromise has become a dirty word in politics, and that's a mistake. Somebody once said to me, "If if you compromise and both sides are unhappy, then it's probably the right decision." <laughs> okay, great. Well, thanks very much to uh, Brian and Stacey for coming in. Um, thanks very much to everyone for listening at home. You can find us every Thursday on SoundCloud and iTunes, or if you can't wait that long, you can pick up a copy of Newsweek Europe, or you can go to newsweek.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.